Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and everything in between, welcome back to the Kevin Clifton Show. And I've got a massive guest on this week. This is potentially going to be the biggest episode that I've done so far. It is with world famous comedian, actor. There's a few things. I don't know. I'll ask him what, what he calls himself now, um, but also a, a good friend of mine is Russell Brand. How are you doing, mate? I'm really good, Kevin. Thanks for having me on, mate. Um, how? What would you call yourself now? Do you, like in, in terms of the work you do? I stay with comedian because uh, you can. It can be applied to the writing or commentary or acting. What I think is that most of the time, even though I have a lot of serious conversations, I suppose these days, mm. I still like to look for what is the comedic perspective, and if it's safe to communicate that then I will. Yeah. <laughs> I listen to you like all the time on different things. You're like putting a lot of stuff out there on your own podcast. You're on other people's podcasts on, on YouTube because you're commentating on a lot of stuff uh, that's happening at the moment, like in the, in the world, like a lot of sort of big conversations. Do you ever feel like you have to censor yourself a bit worried about, what the reaction is going to be because we've got such like a call out culture at the moment because I do like with everything that's happening right now like I find myself like oh I'd really like to say something and voice up and whatever platform I've got I can use to to do that but then I I, I worry about sort of the call out culture people are going to hammer me in some way for what I've said I generally trust myself in that I think that in my heart I don't want to cause any harm to anybody like, but it's easier to uh, exhibit that kind of trust when you're in a live environment where people can look right in your eyes and they can sort of see you and feel you. And it's a different type of experience. And I think, you know, like, it's wise to be prudent because in the past I've not, I was much less uh, circumspect about what I was saying. And as a result, like I was involved in loads of things that were quite controversial and stuff and I live a different kind of life now but I do trust myself because like I don't think oh no secretly I feel all these things that I'm not going to be able to communicate and I think there are a lot of people um, advocating for comedy in particular to be a uh, sort of a or Dave Chappelle said like it's a sacred space a sacred space where you can say stuff that you, and it's understood that in the, that particular context, it's, um, it's, you know, that the intention is to make people laugh and to hurt people, not to be malicious. Yeah. Yeah. Like now with, with the COVID-19 and all that happening, have, have you had work cancelled? Have you found yourself yeah. like cancelled or postponed? Or? I have actually. Like I was doing it, I was on tour in Australia when this pandemic went from something that people were kind of, sort of uh i don't know suspicious of dubious about so you know there was that moment of acceleration where everyone went oh you know this thing's serious but that was in australia where, during that moment and came back home and i was due to be starting a film like in well around i think around now but you know that's that's being rescheduled but you know what it's like with these kind of things it sort of may not happen but i feel quite generally speaking that um I found because I've not been harshly f affected financially or medically by the situation, other than, you know, my mum and not being able to see as much of my mum 
or as I would like. Like I don't really, it's really what it's been is it's, it's given me a lot of time for reflection. And, and also it's, for example, a friend of mine that used to be homeless a lot, she's not no more, said, oh, it turns out you can solve homelessness overnight then. Like you can just overnight put people in travel lodges. Like one of the positive things that's come out of, you know, the suffering and devastation of coronavirus is that it's, we've identified that you can make radical changes very quickly when necessary. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely like that, that kind of um, positive stuff coming out of it. But I have a, a tendency to get anxious about anything. Like everything becomes chaos for me and oh, I'm stressed and I overthink everything. And, and then I feel guilty about that because I, I think I'm, I'm not in a position like that friend of yours who was homeless. So what I wanted to really ask you was like, when I listen to a lot of people like you, and especially over the last few years, I've become really interested in sort of um, self-development, or, you know, whatever you want to call it, and what ways of just improving how it goes out. I'm trying to stop all that sort of madness of, of getting anxious about everything. I, I know you've mentioned him a lot. It might have been you that I, I got it off. I ended up reading Eckhart Tolle, Power of Now, with all that being about sort of stay very much in the present and focus on the present. All sorts of unhappiness or, or anxious thoughts come from looking at the past or past mistakes um, mm. and things, things that have gone wrong or stuff that might go wrong in the future or what, you know, what's going to happen. So if you're very present, then, then you're not going to feel that way. But then where I sort of get overwhelmed and struggle with it is that then I also listen to someone like Tony Robbins Hmm. who'll say, look at your life in the past. Look at what you want to be in five years' time or 10 years' time. There's one theory that people like Eckhart Tolle talk about, if you imagine life as this river and just flow with the river and, and sort of have this acceptance and go with it and stop trying to fight it. And then Tony Robbins, that in one of the first chapters in his book, says like, you're on this river of life, get out an oar and take yourself in, a diff in the direction that you want to go in and change your life and do that. And I've found that me and a lot of like performer friends are in a situation now where like, so all of my work's been cancelled for now mm. in the theatre industry. You must be concerned about that because theatre is under threat. We, we don't know what's happening or, or what the government are going to do yet um, to, to help us or when theatre's going to come back. Um, you know, it's probably going to be one of the last things to come back. And then you hear things like, yeah, but it was in a lockdown situation when Shakespeare wrote three of his best things. Or, you know, this person achieved this in, in lockdown. And so I go back and forth between, should I take this time to have a break and, you know, just sort of focus on myself and be a, sort of in the Eckhart Tolle nature of things? Or is now the time to go, right, where do I want to be in five years' time? I'm going to write three screenplays, four books, and I'm going to do this and I'm going to change that. And, and it sort of stresses me out a bit. Like, where's the balance between that sort of being present and not overthinking all that, but also going after the things you want. The way I find the balance there is firstly by accepting my own feelings, you know, like I don't think, oh, well, you know, there are people suffering such egregious hardship that my own modest hardship is irrelevant because I think we all know that, that there is a scale to suffering, but we're all of us dealing with whatever we're dealing with. And as for the kind of Eckhart Tolle, Tony Robbins uh, sort of dilemma, and, and I've looked at, I really admire both of those people. 
And I, and I reckon that I agree that sort of Eckhart Tolle at least seems more like a person that's let go of his individual self and is happy to trust the kind of Tao, the, the flow of life, the way of life. And Tony Robbins certainly has a background that comes from assertion of the self, maximization of the self, realization of the self, and similar with Gary Vee also. And I, I, I feel like the same things as you sometimes, Kev, to be honest. Like, what, what are we supposed to be doing? But the kind of thing that I'm investigating at this point in my life is much more in line with the Eckhart Tolle, let go, trust it. Because I feel like, and, and I would say that, you know, that Tony Robbins also is talking about letting go, surrender, trying to find bliss within, acknowledging that service and surrender has to be part of who you are, you know. So I'm sure there is there is a crossover, really, but there are so many different ways, so many different paths, as many paths as there are people, I suppose, ultimately, you could contest. So me, at the moment in my life, I'm much more, to, tr at least consciously, attempting to let go, attempting to stay in the moment, attempting to recognize when I'm attaching my well-being to external circumstances. And it's pretty easy to attach your well-being to external circumstances if you're worried that you're not going to work or that you're not going to fulfill your dreams or that you're going to be homeless or hungry or desperate in some way that's you know these are great motivators but that's why like that's why i suppose i find Eckhart Tolle in particular inspiring and the kind of philosophies in which he is well versed comfort in because it seems to me that what they're saying in like whether it's, you know, Buddhism or aspects of Vedic philosophy, is that, yes, there is this flowing river of life, but you are that flowing river of life. Don't set yourself apart from it. Don't uh, focus on your individual will. Don't cultivate your ego and define yourself by what you have or what you're achieving or by what other people think of you. These are, in a sense, um, these are these are evolved tendencies warped by the lens of a culture that magnifies certain aspects of our nature, notably fear and desire. There's a lot of the time when you're out and about or when you're experiencing media that fear is being amplified, other times when desire is being amplified. Of course, fear and desire are necessary for our survival, but we, weren't, we didn't evolve to live in the kind of conditions we mean now. I don't need mean coronavirus i mean uh, urbanization civilization we're sort of simple hunter gatherer creatures that have evolved to that kind of environment and i'm not suggesting that that's what we return to but i think we should be aware of it when we're making decisions for ourselves and about the way that we organize society on the subject of fear and anxiety one of the best things i heard from uh, a teacher of mine is that there is wisdom fear and neurotic fear neurotic fear you can never do anything about it it's all full of doubt and circular thinking of oh god i can't do this i can't do that wisdom fear is a kind of awareness a kind of awareness that okay like so in this time things are things are changing so uh, the, the, the awareness is okay i'm gonna need to do things differently there are certain plans i've had that aren't going to play out the way i wanted them to but i don't think we can set ourselves against that i think we have to learn to flow with it so even though i would say that tony robbins has got an aspect of that eckhart Tolle stuff in his work anyway I, like i'm i'm feel like personally 
that's the side of things that um, feels more useful to me at the moment because in the past I was all about trying to realize success as an individual, trying to, ex- to attain things as an individual. I grew up in Essex in the 80s and 90s. It's all about <laughs> go out and get what you've got to get. You know, like all of, and like, tell the truth, it just gives me an anxiety attack, that kind of thinking. Yeah, but even just thinking about like, right, I've got to create something different now and, and, and I'm sort of learning about writing at the moment and having to go at writing a few things. Already, I seem to be almost psyching myself out of it by going, like, oh, but it's not good enough. This has to be, like, the best thing that, that I've ever written, you know. And, well, if they created this when, when, when he was in lockdown, there's nothing, to, there's nothing to stop me. And I've just got all this, like... <laughs> yeah, you know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Who are you comparing yourself to? Shakespeare. Don't put yourself under that kind of pressure. Like... like uh, did you listen to Elizabeth Gilbert, like uh, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love? She's amazing. She's an amazing teacher on the subject of creativity. And she says, don't use perfectionism to prevent your creativity. Accept that what you create is as good as it is for now. Mm. It might evolve and it might change, but it's, it's better to, you know, like a good plan today is better than a perfect plan tomorrow. As they say in the film, wag the dog. I reckon with um, like, you know, in terms of like, yeah, that is one of the things that is presented itself now is if you want to get on and do something, you've got to be able to do something yourself. And I think writing is a brilliant response to that. And what is the best way for you to utilize your personal skill set, your personal history, your personal understanding of EG growing up in the North in show business, coming from that dancer background with people in your family, like uh, was it your uncle John, that ventriloquist? That's a whole rich world of interesting strange stuff that you come from the world of ballroom etc you know and you've got the skill sets now as a singer and actor and obviously dancer you know like write something to showcase your own abilities and tell a story that you're interested in telling and be honest with yourself when you have the natural vacillation that we all have between i want to do this in order to be successful have money prestige power and privilege and the other side of that, because I want to communicate, because I want to help people, I want to elevate people, I want to realize beauty, I want to tell the truth, I want to inspire other people. I think all of us have that, that a palette that consists of those various impulses and perhaps it's as good as we can do to try to bias ourselves in the direction of service and altruism. Well, would you, when, it comes to, when, you, when you talk about things like, um, you know, the things you can gain from it, like, you know, and, uh, money and fame and, and um, just success, those kind of successes that you can get out, out of doing things that sort of play to our ego. Because everything in me wants to do things for the right reasons and, and to do things for, you know, artistic integrity. And it's something that I really want to do. But, mm. but at the same time, like, if no one's going to tell me that I've done a good job, I sort of lose interest. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Do, do you have that? Or does yeah. like, I start feeling guilty about it and, and like, oh, maybe I'm just trying to chase people complimenting me or. <clears throat> I do have that Kev. I do have it. Yeah. Like, but what I've sort of like, cause I've got that 12 step process now. Mm. What the 12 step process is, is a way of bringing about a spiritual awakening in a sort of a context where you may not have a traditional religious background or understanding. 
So like I recognize now that I can't ever be fulfilled through any external thing, not meaningfully fulfilled, not only, you know, drugs, alcohol, but also not sex or money or any kind of success. I'm not saying, you know, that it's better to live in penury and poverty because that's obviously difficult. But what I am saying is that if I find myself while I'm working, say, because I do have that same impulse as you, thinking, you know, I want someone to compliment me because I've got something I'm writing at the moment and that's exactly the problem, actually, is that it takes a lot of time to write it and then when I give it to them, the people I'm working with, I just want them to go, oh, my God, you're a genius, aren't you? This is incredible you've done this. And when they go, no, could you change that bit and what about that and go back and do that? I just want to go, no, oh, God, can't someone else do it? I don't want to do <laughs> yeah. this anymore. Yeah. Right? And, and like... But that makes me, what I heard once from a teacher, Radhanath Swami, was uh, all forms of desire are the inappropriate substitute for the desire to be at one with God. So whatever it is you think you're feeling, like I'm lonely, if you're thinking I'm lonely, you need to evolve and develop your conscious contact with a higher power through prayer and meditation. If you're thinking, I don't feel enough love, you need to cultivate the love between you and this deep, deep consciousness. When we're talking about that flow situation with the Eckhart Tolle and Tony Robbins thing, that's not nothing. I spoke to that dude, Sadhguru, and he said, there's a deep intelligence, and this is sort of obviously true from a number of perspectives, a deep intelligence in nature. Everything around us that grows in and evolves has a deep, deep intelligence in it. And we are part of that intelligence and we are riding on that intelligence. The image of flow or of a river is a good one because these things exist beyond space and time as we understand them, especially time. Our understanding of time comes from our own knowledge of our own mortality. If we were all infinite, we would conceptualize time entirely differently. So what I feel like, mate, is that if you find yourself thinking, I want a compliment, I want a compliment, sometimes you'll get it and sometimes you won't. But it's good to have in the back of your mind, this is never going to work for me. In the end, like the path of trying to resolve the way I feel inside by getting compliments doesn't, doesn't work for me. I, so now at least I know what it is I have to return to. What I have to return to is, in simple language, I'm doing this for good. And if you don't like the word uh, uh, for God, and if you don't like the word God, you can use the word good, you know, like just I'm doing this because I want to help. I want to be of service. But I suppose, what I mean by God is a kind of oneness, union, beyond separation. And if there is no separation, what can I really get? What can I really lose? You know, those kind of ideas that are quite uh, are perennial that crop up in all religions and scriptures and folklore, all of the all of the ideas that lead us back to lead us back to kindness and compassion. Why should we be kind and compassionate to one another? Those are all ultimately the same as one another. We're all connected to one another. I was talking to Cartol quite recently, mate, mm. and like for a podcast, and like he um, he said that you know, like he was talking about returning to the awareness, just like you've been reading about in Power of Now. Return to the awareness of the exact moment that you're in. The conceptual mind can never be fulfilled. You can never be fulfilled by the concept of, oh, I might get this in the future, or I shouldn't have done that in the past, or this is what my life should be like. He says, you can only, he said, find contentment by appreciating the aliveness of the exact moment you're in. And when you're unsatisfied in any way, is because you are not appreciating the aliveness of the exact moment you're in. I feel like that makes sense. Of course, there obviously is. 
suffering, brutality, cruelty, death, disease, violence. These things are all real. But most of the time, the suffering I'm experiencing is in my head. It's me thinking stuff. Yeah. But like, and, and, and on the thinking then, this is the thing that I don't really understand. And, and I hear people like, like you speak about um, consciousness a lot. And, and it's something I can't <laughs> like wrap my head around. Um, when this idea that sometimes um, like our thoughts are not our own, that, that you know, and, and, and I saw, when I first when I first heard that, I started thinking, but but of course they're like it's my brain, it's my it's my head. I'm thinking these things, um, you know. I'll say like what happened. What happens to me though? Like I said before, I go on to perform is that I get really nervous, mm. um, and I'm quite nervous in real life, in real life, in normal life. Anyway, um, it's 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 only when I sort of get on stage that I that I feel that that all goes away, mm. but. Like, Normally, uh, I'll be sort of quite anxious. Oh, what's this person going to say about me? Or what's going to happen? This is going to go wrong. Or da, 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 da. What, mm. what's the re- what's the reaction going to be? Um, and I sort of used to just put that down to nerves. But then, the more this lockdown has gone on, sometimes I can just be sat like watching Netflix or like thinking about football, and then all of a sudden, I get this like it's like an attack of thoughts of like oh but you know when some memory of like when this happened and and remember when you behaved like that and and it attacks me and suddenly i go into this like oh my god what am i gonna what am i gonna do and and, and those are the times when when you just want to sort of show it up by like having a drink or something um which i don't, mm. don't do no more um but i, can't, I, I don't know when i listen to this I, I i don't understand it i can't i can't understand this whole Consciousness being in a separate thing and trying to allow yourself to see it and acknowledge it as opposed to like it's all coming from you. I don't know. How do you put all that together? I think that you do understand it. Consciousness, the way that I've been taught to understand it, is awareness itself. If you think about this moment now, Kev, you are aware. You can hear what I'm saying. You can see me. And also you're aware of the feeling of your own body. And you're aware of the own of your own thoughts in your own mind. But what is the awareness itself that is experiencing your body, my voice, your own thoughts? Most of these practices, as far as I can understand them, are designed for us to accept that we are the awareness, not the contents of the awareness. He used the example the other day, I can't tell, like if you imagine a room. We think about like if you're like if you were describing the room you're in, you'd describe the four walls, the ceiling, the floor, a desk, a chair, whatever's in it, and maybe you, that's the only thing you describe. But you'd be missing out one vital element: the space, the space in that room. And Eckhart Tolle said that is like consciousness itself, the environment in which thoughts are taking place. Furthermore, I'd like to add that thoughts, of course, they're taking place within your skin, like in the bag of skin that you live in. But if you feel feelings of inadequacy and inferiority and ambition and failure, and I feel all of those things, then it's more like a kind of mental virus as opposed to some signature of our own individual failing. When you feel the anxiety before going on stage, that's normal and natural. And it it took me, when the first time I was performing without drinking drugs, I remember thinking, oh, I'm fucking hell. You know I mean, like, but I used to think it with drinking drugs as well, like just the fear, the overwhelming fear of, like, oh my God, this is going to go wrong. And then one day I was doing a show at a pub called The King's Head 
in Finsbury Park. And I remember, and I lived not that far, I was in Crouch End actually, that pub, and I lived in Finsbury Park. And I remember thinking, well, if this goes really brilliant, you're still getting the, I think it was number 24, I can't remember, number 24 bus home. And if it goes badly, you're getting that bus home. There's no version of this where you're going to be carried away by angels and another version where you get your like throat cut in the gutter. Like it's, you're just going home on the bus. You're, why are you elevating this? And so it's like the, the, um, the, whatever that, that is that happens to us emotionally, the fear happens, I believe, and then we narrativize the fear. Or maybe a thought occurs and then that triggers emotion. I'm sure it can happen in both orders. I'm sure the separation between thought, nervous reaction, anatomical cool reaction, all those things are probably all deeply, deeply interconnected and probably not distinct in the way that we, you know, we would have once thought of them as organically distinct. I'm sure they're all interconnected as indeed our organs are. Whilst they may have separate functions, they're all in communion and harmony with one another in an ideal situation so what i feel like mate is that when you think of like you know say we keep the example before you're about to perform and you feel fear and you think oh i feel frightened now what people tell you is in this moment move your awareness either to your breath or to the feeling in your hands like you you can feel that you've got hands you can feel that you've got a body and then that isn't thought and your awareness of your own breath, this necessary constant sustaining force that we all do in more or less the same way, that isn't thought. And then we learn to, it's natural, says Muji, to think these thoughts, but it's like our consciousness is the screen onto which it's projected. The content, we don't need to follow it. If you start, like Eckhart Tolle says, you know, you start by thinking, he said, don't think, do not think, don't think at all, because you start by thinking, what should we have by, for dinner? And you end by thinking, my life is worthless, I might as well kill myself. <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> what happens. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so he says, don't think at all. He doesn't even make the distinction between good thoughts and bad thoughts. Of course, there are sort of things that we need to rationally consider from time to time. But let's be honest, you and I. We're always thinking, sometimes I'm on a walk now with my dog, and I go on this walk a lot. Sometimes I do a whole walk, and then notice that I've been on a walk. I might as well have just been in a, a room smoking crack because I've not looked at the trees. I've tried to be more aware of it on this walk. I saw these tiny little frogs a minute ago. I'm very much paying attention to this oak tree ahead of me and these fields of wheat and I'm looking at my dog and all that kind of stuff. You know, but there is so much beauty in the world. There is so much connection between us. And of course there is suffering and of course there is corruption. Of course there are all these things. But if we, are, if we have any intention at all of changing those things, I think we have to first change ourselves. The one domain over which we do have some control, the domain of our own conscious awareness. Consciousness simply means the experience, the experience of smelling uh, bacon or the experience of smelling paint the experience of tasting a strawberry that can never really be entirely understood without doing it. The experience. No one, not in science or religion, knows how this comes about. There are theories at the moment like um, that sort of try to mathematically understand the existence of consciousness. Some suggest um, that a theory called panpsychism, which has been around for a while, is true, that there is con consciousness is a fundamental component of the universe, that consciousness doesn't evolve from matter at some point. It's always been there, and that there is consciousness in all things. And this all stats like exists in some pagan religions. In fact, you could say it's the essence of pagan religion. So consciousness is merely the space of your head and your thoughts are like 
the objects that you put into that space. So, so just before going on stage, just try and become as conscious as possible of things like breath and hands. Yeah, I think, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm more particular to performing, Kev. What I do and what I did that night is like I started to feel like, okay, this is your body preparing you to think fast. In your case, you know, you do highly exertion, depending on the show you're doing. You do things you have to move fast and specifically in conjunction with other people. You do a very challenging job, making decisions very quickly. Like there's so much going on and your body is preparing you to do that thing. And I think that's fantastic. And like we, if we don't narrativize it, if we don't go, oh God, I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail. Did you see that brilliant documentary about Michael Jordan, The Last Dance? Yeah. Towards the end, that bloke goes like Michael Jordan was really a mystic. It's not that he was the fastest runner or the best jumper or best passer or dunk or any of that. It's that he was always in the moment, 100% in the moment. That meant he's like, if you're in the present, if you're in the present, that is where all the power is. That is where God is. And like uh, Joseph Campbell says, what does it matter if Christ is reborn on the cross 2,000 years ago if we are not reborn to ourselves every moment? In the, you know, all of the things that happened when we were kids, all of our previous relationships, they don't matter now. They're not happening now. This is the reality now. We can take it wherever we want. We can do whatever we want as individuals and as a society and as a culture. We can imagine and envisage new worlds for ourselves and for one another. This is a possibility we have and this is sort of part of the role of the artist and the performer to bring down that imagination to demonstrate that imagination to manifest it yeah, so me and you had some conversations a, a while back when you uh, really helped me because I, I was like i just i feel like i want to stop drinking I'm drinking too much and, and i want to i want to stop doing that now um and you talked to me a lot about um like replacing things in your routine that's like if like part of your identity basically is how you describe it to me so if like if you're ident- if you're like a, a newborn baby and then gradually as you get older you put like these badges on yourself of like i am this person i like this music and this is the food i don't like and all you sort of how you are as a person this is how i dress and this is how i talk and and, and whatever but actually we can deconstruct different parts of it and, mm. and you can sort of, and, and you were talking about how you do uh, jujitsu because the identity of uh, Russell Brand before wasn't someone who would do jujitsu, but if it if it can be going forward, um, then also that can be a person that doesn't drink or take drugs. Um, so I, I find that if I'm going to improve, and I know I sort of keep get, I keep getting away from the performance, but um, if I'm going to improve in any way or in any area of my life, I have to somehow be focused on what's been going wrong. But at the same time, that's what comes and, and attacks me. Do you know what that sense? Yes, it does. I understand what you're saying. Look, look, in a way, the best way for me to communicate this is the, is the thing that I best understand, which is a, the 12-step process, right? The 12-step process, which is usually used, or at least was designed <clears throat> for people trying to overcome alcohol and drug dependency, I believe can be used for all forms of attachment. You know, if you've got a drink problem, it suggests that one day at a time you stop drinking and then now you're in real trouble because you're going to be confronted with all the things that made you drink Mm. in the first place. But this is how the process works. One, you admit there's a problem. Like, all right, the, the problem is my drinking is out of control. I can't stop it. 
and uh, when I try and control it, I can't control it. It's making things worse. I'm losing relationships or jobs or I'm getting into trouble. Now, like that, alcohol is likely to create extreme circumstances, same as drugs, but you know, you can do it in other ways. Say, like you're saying just there, that like, um, you know, the, the, the anxiety or the fear is a problem. So firstly, we admit it's a problem. If you don't admit it's a problem, then you, how on earth you can't progress. The mm. second step, you know, came to believe that power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That's the principle of hope, that it is possible to change, that we don't always have to be the same. Change is possible. And in my own life, you know, I've seen that happen again and again. Something happened to me where, you know, one day I was drinking and taking drugs and the next day I stopped drinking and taking drugs and then I've not had to ever again. What was it? What changed in my life? What was it that was able to exact that change? So say you apply that to anxiety, you have to on some level believe it's possible to not be anxious. If you think it's impossible to not be anxious, that's going to really impede your progress, I would say. It's worth considering as well. What about people that used to be anxious that are no longer anxious that learn to frame and program that that energy and that experience differently? Someone told me once that they spoke to Bob Dylan and he said, like they said, do you get uh, nervous before shows? And he went, no. He goes, what do you feel like? And he goes. I just feel like all this energy and anticipation, like my stomach's churning with anticipation and excitement. He's describing anxiety, but he doesn't call it that. (laughs) Yeah, repurposed it. And the third step, um, made a decision to turn our life and will over to the care of God as we understand God. Now, I just see that as you've got to accept help. Some people don't believe in God and there's no obligation to believe in God, but it's important to recognize that if you want to, we've admitted we've got a problem. We've, we've said it's possible to change. Now we're at the point where, it's, where we have to accept that we will not be able to change by doing what we've always done, thinking what we've always thought, acted how we've always acted. Those things are going to have to change. That's going to, in my experience, involve accepting help and counsel from other people. What I do in my own life, my own program, my own spiritual practice is I have people further down the path than me and I asked them what they did when they were in situations like me and like most of them don't they sort of explicitly won't give advice they only share experience well I had a situation a bit like that and this is what I did and this is how it panned out pretty badly or pretty well so you might want to consider this you know and so so what like how that relates to what you're just saying is it's not like we sort of we don't abandon the past, but the past becomes a tool, a utensil. You know, say something bad has happened to you. It's really bad if you've been abused or been a victim of violence or whatever. But what is worse is if you continue to perpetually suffer from it. You know, like you can see how, the, like how abuse and violence can become a spur for people to instigate great change, how it can instigate great compassion and a will to create a better world. Or in some cases, it can cause people to collapse in on themselves and be very uncommunicative because they're you know understandably traumatized the 12-step process in particular is about liberating yourself from the attachment of habits and i'm very interested in changing the impact of trauma on us the the kind of the trauma of of whatever severity because i don't think there needs to be a league table of who's at the worst life you know, I think that all of us should individually deal with the trauma that we've dealt with and collectively serve one another however we, however we can. 
as much as we can. Some people are better equipped to do that than others. So I feel like that those first three steps, admit there's a problem, believe it's possible to change, recognize that you won't be able to change unless you accept help and are willing to do things differently. That's a very good foundation upon which to build the rest of the necessary spiritual work, which in my experience includes inventorying of the things that you've done in the past, why you did them, sharing that with someone you trust, looking at some of the patterns in your life, being willing to let go of those patterns, even though it's hard, making amends to people that you've harmed, unless it would make things worse for them to hear from you or see you. And then staying aware and conscious as we've been continually discussing. That's step 10. Step 11 is to cultivate a conscious contact with a higher power of your own understanding whether that's nature, the cosmos, or a god from some tradition, just a deeper aspect of yourself, that we are not just our thoughts, we are not just our desires and our fears, there is something that's experiencing it. And what he was saying on the phone, Eckhart Tolle, was that what, what is behind your identity and what is behind my identity is the same thing. It's the same thing. We're all connected somehow. And if, as this theory panpsychism suggests there is consciousness in all things i wonder if like carbon or oxygen or any other molecule it's sort of the same the same in all of us but whilst we are, are all individuals with different identities for gender sex and race and etc behind those identities there is a oneness and if we can honor that oneness as well as honoring other people's particular individual identities we might create more cohesion. Yeah. Now, that, yeah, that make that. Make, that's, I like that idea because it's it's like the force in Star Wars. <laughs> it's like this force that <laughs> that exists that 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 sort of that, that's that's how I used to be a bit like I, oh, I don't really believe in God. Um, but the more in the last in the last few years, I've started to um, I started to believe, but in in a sort of a different way, almost like um like a a force. Like it, like from Star Wars. I know that sounds silly as we're saying it on this on this chat, but not like, really. It doesn't sound silly. It's all like you know. I think a reason that those films have been so successful is because there's so much in them that makes sense to people. And in fact, George Lucas is it's commonly known was heavily influenced by Joseph Campbell, who wrote about this sort of the connections between various religions, folklores, and myths, suggesting that behind them all, there it could be a kind of universal truth. Now, a lot of people are suspicious of this idea of one universal truth because some people believe it can be used to sort of suggest that one way of seeing the world is better than others and they can use it to oppress and repress people. And it's definitely historically true that that's happened. But from a spiritual perspective, the idea that we're all one, we're all equal, we're all valuable, for me, that seems like a beautiful idea and like a film like Star Wars that talks about, you know, a classic hero's journey that the hero leaves where they're from because both they and the place where they are from need something. They have to undergo suffering and challenges, meet mentors, face up to the dark father, literally the, the person we could potentially become if we don't awaken and face up to the, the horrors of the Death Star. Yeah. I mean, and don't get me started on the Ewoks. Those <laughs> guys, there's some of your best friends out there on the road. So, like, you know, that, and then you return home. You return home. That's the classic hero's journey. You return home having learned something. Yeah. I'm reading that book that you told me to read at the moment, um, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. 
Um, oh, good. How are you getting on? Yeah, I'm about a quarter of the way through. But yeah, already seeing that just the similarity in different stories being told over and over again. So it started to make me think that maybe all these stories are there as like a just a, a collection of stories by people as like a representation of, of what our sort of purpose might be or what consciousness is for everyone, what our purpose of, of being here is um yeah i think you're right kev and and and, and also so, so that's that's when i started coming around to the idea of like when before I, my attitude like well the bible it's just you know it's a load of nonsense and that would never happen and you know when you listen to sort of um atheists talking about but it's just nonsense and it was written by man and now i'm starting to think yeah but that's the point like that's we are all this and it, it is written by man and maybe every little story in bible is just is a collection of our best effort to explain our own journey as as a you know beings or as, as a as a consciousness yeah i reckon you're right kevin so does uh Carl Jung that there are certain archetypes some sort of like pure forms as it were expressing themselves through different stories and different belief systems separated by thousands of miles geographically and thousands of years historically the same stories and idea keep ideas keep presenting themselves and I think that you know in 12 steps it says God as you understand God and as long as I think we don't start telling other people what to believe and what to do. I don't feel like there's a problem, you know? Yeah, yeah. Which is why, if I'm, <laughs> I knew we'd go off on loads of, in loads of different directions, but um, talking about performance, which is why, like, stories and storytellers, performers, entertainers, like, so putting on plays and making films or writing songs or any of, any of that is all just part of that journey, don't you think? Like, like we're, we're all we're yeah. the same people that are writing stories in the Bible or, you know, or ancient tales or um, writing pop music today or, or being in, in movies or whatever, writing Star Wars. Like, it's all part of that same, just all trying, all trying to figure it out for ourselves, you know, our own, our own existence. I think so. I recently come around to this idea because I used to say to um, Stace, I used to get a bit embarrassed about what I did, like, in front of um, obviously my, my girlfriend, Stacey, she's obviously doing a lot of really serious stuff. She's going around the world doing documentaries and talking about all the serious stuff that's happening in the world. And there's one point when I, I said to her, like, you've just come back from an ISIS camp in Syria, talking to the people that are being affected there, like the ISIS brides in, in Syria. On the same day that you interviewed some of these people and, and heard about their experience and heard it from their point of view, I've done a samba in a sparkly shirt. Like it just feels a bit, <laughs> but then so what were the marks for the samba? Exactly. What marks did you get? Yeah. <laughs> you won that glitter ball fair and square. <laughs> um, but then she actually said to said to me at the time. She she said, yeah, but like just because I'm sort of talking about all the serious stuff, like an entertainer's job is just as. It's just as important because it's a comment on, you know, uh, one, people need to be entertained. People also want entertainment in their lives. But also, too, it's a, it's, it is a comment on our sort of um, state and psyche and, and, and it transports you to some sort of, you know, other place where you can experience a story that you like and you can put yourself in the shoes of a hero or, you know. Yeah, I agree with Stacey there. I think it's possible to dance on strictly in a way that touches people very deeply in their heart on something like heartbreak or love or connection 
destruction or loss or death or whatever. And it would be possible to make a documentary on ISIS that's bloody insensitive and doesn't teach you anything. Now, not, that's not like what, nah. not in the case of Stacey. She's bloody brilliant. But like, she's in love with you for a reason. And uh, uh, when you were saying that just then, I thought, that's a good idea for a film. He's like uh, a man who's like a dancer, does that kind of stuff. Who's, you know, basically your life. His girlfriend makes really heavy, important films. How do you find purpose? How do you find meaning? Hmm. My, I've got young kids, so I'm always watching like the Wiggles. You know, they're like a kid's pop group singing like kids' songs, but they all will have musical backgrounds and would all want to be, you know, adult musicians maybe on some level, or at least that would have been something they'd have had to have overcome. I'm kind of fascinated by that. We all like, we all want to be taken seriously, don't we? we? All want to be considered important and artists. Once I did this, um, I like presented an award at the Australian equivalent of the Grammys, and it just turned out I didn't know who anybody was when I was there. It was still in a big arena, though. It was like an arena of I don't know, ten thousand, maybe twenty thousand people. But I didn't know who anybody was, so I didn't feel like I was just like you know. I thought, oh, it's cool. I went out when I presented the award for best album or whatever. I just went out with my mum. I went, yeah, I was best album. I was so free. And then I thought, realized, what's the difference if it was in America? So what if you can see Jay-Z or Florence and the Machine or whoever it is now? You know, like, well, what does it matter? What does it matter? We're in infinite space in both directions, out there into the cosmos, down into the infinitesimal. What really matters is our, that we are somehow expressing our authentic truth, our heart, whether we're doing that at 8 o'clock on a Saturday night or, you know, in a documentary format or just in a church hall somewhere. You know, heart is heart. And I read this brilliant thing once this by this uh, philosopher, Emmett Fox, he's kind of a Christian guy, breaking down stuff from the Bible. And he says, like, you know, the, the soul is eternal. This is the substance of eternity. But, like, civilizations come and go. Where's Mesopotamia? Now, where are all these, where's Babylon, all these fallen civilizations? And indeed, our civilization will fall and the earth itself will one day uh, be destroyed, engulfed when the sun implodes. So, but the soul, the soul is forever. The awareness itself, the consciousness itself in spiritual traditions is not tied to the body, but transcendent of it. Some people think it's more like, you know, that consciousness isn't generated in the brain. It's the brain is like a receiver, like the band's name, Radiohead, that we receive it. So if we're connected to the stuff of truth in whatever it is we're doing. So if you are writing something, if you're telling the truth and trusting yourself, something will flow through you. Something will come through you that's bigger than any of us. And we can trust it. And sometimes we see that, I think. You see all the time in culture when people are good at something, whether it's dancing or football, or whatever it is, you see, you recognize, oh, the beauty, the beauty, something is being realized there. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, and that feels like a flow, doesn't it? Like when, when you're really just, yeah. like, everything seems like it's fit into one place. What's that what flow is? Um, did you always want to be like an entertainer or a performer? I'm not suggesting like from a kid you saw it in all the ways we've just been talking about, you know, <laughs> in terms of like, I'm going to do, I'm going to carry on. Bible. To, I don't know. Maybe in your case, you did. <laughs> but, um, I was always a little show off, Kev. Yeah. When I was in, like a little show off, but I didn't. You know, I don't want to say like I didn't. I didn't mean I didn't realize it because where I was from was so ghetto that it was obvious that I would have to be a drug dealer. I just mean it didn't. It just didn't occur to me. Oh yeah, you could do that until I did a play, a school play at Grey School, Bugsy Malone, 
until I did that, like, you know, when I'd see my dad at the weekend, he would have like Tony Robbins tapes, cassette tapes playing mm. in his car. And it was all be talking about, you know, you can realize yourself, you generate yourself, you make yourself, you can create, you live your own, you know, all of that stuff. Well, we, you know, particularly Tony Robbins, this is obviously, you know, 30, 40 years ago now yeah. before his stuff evolved to a more um, complex, beautiful, and I would say spiritual. And I mean, I think he's a powerful teacher is basically what I'm saying. But anyway, like while the time I was listening to them tapes and all that kind of stuff, I suppose when I had the idea that it was possible to be an actor because of doing that school play. I think those two things became somewhat alloyed together at that point. From the first moment I went on a stage, there was nothing else I wanted to do, nothing else. And it, I was willing to do whatever it took, which in my case, you know, I remember I got into a drama school, you know, and I remember them saying, oh, you know, in the Chinese theater, you have to sweep the stage. I went to Conti's when I was 16 for a, for a year and then I went to a, a drama school called Drama Center when I was 19 right. for three years and when I got there that like they went there to all of us there's two things you know they taught us some good stuff at that drama center one they taught us the power of stories that we've just been talking about now that's one of the first lessons your storytellers you've got to learn how to tell stories through whatever medium and another thing that um that they told us is like in the Chinese theater they make you sweep the stage for 15 years before you're even allowed to do anything, stick on a dress or a bit of, bit of slap or a wig or whatever. And like, um, I thought, that's punishing. But it took me until I was record. I didn't think I earned proper money and, you know, did it for a living, did it for a living till I was 31. So it took about that long. It took from when I was 15, first time I was on a stage, and the first time I set foot in there, the first time I heard people laughing at me, I thought, yeah, this is it. This is it. Like, I grabbed something there i grabbed it and never ever it's still in my hand now it's still in my hand now that thing i grabbed you know it's like oh this is it this is who i am this is what i'm meant to be doing for me it's like live performance to feel like an audience particularly if they're laughing that's what you know that's what it's all about and i've done sort of various permutations writing acting whatever but like uh, there's something in it there's something like in a way whether I think, you know, whatever performance aspect of performance art you're talking about is a kind of channeling, it's a kind of shamanism. Another thing they taught me at that drama school is that theater and religion have the same roots. They both come from ritual. And like in, in, in the birth of tragedy, they sort of talk about how like on one direction you get the priest and in the other direction you get the actor. Both things, you know, performances that are happening in front of people, both ritualized and both ways of accessing the sacred and telling stories that make it easier to stay alive, you know, to suffer the slings and arrows, as it were. So, yeah, I like, I didn't realize it when I was like five or six or anything like that. But I always knew, like, um, that, that that I was a sort of a show off, and I felt sort of free through performance. I felt free through performance. And once I did that school play when I was fifteen, I was like, oh, that's that's it now. That's me. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel, what about you? Well, I yeah, I feel that when I'm on stage, like when it's weird. I I'm still trying to pinpoint where things change for me because when I when I was a kid, I, yeah, I just wanted to be a performer. Everything was very much about dancing. But I always kind of thought, also one day I want to do some singing and acting and stuff as well. I want to I want to tell stories. I want to be an entertainer. You know, all of that. And when I was a kid, I was. Um, yeah, a bit like you're saying, I felt like I was a bit of a show off when I was a kid and, and, and yeah, and I wanted to just carry on doing this and I liked being up there and performing and, and 
having you know having people feel things and clap or whatever. Um, but then somewhere along the line, there's been a different shift where now, like the person I've become as an adult, especially now, like in the last few years, I've I've become more and more I don't know, like introverted and and sort of sometimes like um, in in a group at a, at a party or something. Like even at my birthday, like when you came to my um, birthday. Party, and there's loads of people there and it was my party and I knew everyone there, but I was still slightly like, I don't quite know what to do at a party or how, mm-hmm. to, um, how to interact with everyone. And, um, and I'm not very showy offy at all. And, and I'm quite anxious, like, like, like I've said, but then there's something about when I'm on stage where once, once I sort of kick into gear, once I get past that nervous before being on stage bit, like I can become a massive extrovert on stage and just everything sort of goes away and, and, and that flow kicks in and you feel like you just, that, that's where I feel like I can really express myself. And I, and I, th- I sometimes wish I, I could do the same off stage again, like I used to when I was a kid. Um, but I don't know, somehow, somehow I, I, I'm still searching for that. But then I, I guess it used to be like, I'd go to the party and, and I'd have a, a fair few whiskeys and, and, um, mm. you can just do what you want because you're drunk and you're not thinking too much, and it's, ah, you know, and, and you can sort of be loud and, and be part of the gang, you know. Um, but now that I don't, now that I don't drink anymore, like s- suddenly, like when everyone else is in that zone and I'm and I'm sober, and like I don't quite know how to interact with everyone. Um, but stage, no, not do I. But stage is like the the release. It's like the little safe space where I can sort of express i guess oh it's great isn't it we're very lucky to have that and you're very lucky to have the the gift that you've got you seem you know like a a normal person that's been touched by grace that can tell stories beautifully that can move articulately but it's still recognizable as a bloke from grimsby even while doing an argentinian tango that's a beautiful gift to have and i've seen you convey it more you know for, for when i've come and seen you live i've seen you do it as a singer and an actor as well and continue to trust it is what i would say and let it take you where it wants to take you one of the mistakes i feel like i made is that i got given something that meant that i could live the life that i've lived and all i've done is put it to work you know like go out there get me some money go out there get me fame and celebration but now i think what what does it want what does it want this thing what does it want to do? Where does it want to go? Mm. Like maybe trust it and trust that it will take you somewhere beautiful and that there is something to be um, gained and experienced that is um, more fulfilling than ex- external approval or validation. And not to beat yourself up for wanting that. I'm talking to myself at least as much as I'm talking to you because we're trained to want approval and validation and to prioritize the kind of things we prioritize in life but but to know that it will never work for us and but there is something there is something trying to be born something trying to realize itself and if we honor it Mm. it it will look after us and i i guess like just if i can i want to be respectful like of of, of your time and stuff but if i can just ask you about um see i'm personally in my sort of uh performance career right now like a little bit of a sort of where I've been, everyone sort of sees me as uh, a, a certain way, I think, as, you know, the people call me Kevin from Grimsby on Strictly 
from Strictly Come Dance. And that's what I, well, that's what they sort of see me as. And sometimes I feel this pressure to sort of live up to that and be, oh, I've got to carry on being Kevin from Grimsby, you know, um, cheeky, chappy, northern boy next door with a side part in, like, for everyone that, that, you know, is sort of very heartland and, you know, non-offensive and, and, and whatever. But there's a part of me now, like, obviously this year I've just left Strictly and I'm, I've been doing the other bits of like acting and singing and stuff and there's this part of me that sort of wants to be taken seriously as an actor in a, in a different space and, and sort of want to show like other sides of myself. But I also know that carrying on sort of being Kevin from Grimsby is like, is a successful bit. And I've, and I've watched you from, like you've gone through sort of different stages in your career where you've gone, um, you know, you were from early days doing like Ponderland. I remember when like me and my mate, um, Kristen McManus, when we were on tour with burn the floor, used to sit, we were in San Francisco and every night we'd perform the show. We'd come, back to our, um, our, our digs and we drink Dr. Pepper and watch Ponderland. And you were this sort of like, you know, loud, over-the-top sort of uh, rock presenter. Then it went into your stand-up comedy and you'd be playing like the O2, this massive gigs as a stand-up comedian. And I heard you talk before about this, almost this need to like create sort of like a character like you you i heard you say something about how it was like a, you saw it as like a silhouette um like everyone can recognize the mickey mouse silhouette so like if, if that's why you used to like make your hair all massive like back comb your hair and, and and have a certain like character that if people just instantly recognize this silhouette of a character and then that sort of helped with there being a su- sort of successful in terms of i don't know like marketability or, or or whatever, but then since then you've then transitioned to like say what you are now. Like, you know, I've got a Mac on. Got, well, right now you've got a Mac on. A lot of the time you've got like, a on or a robe or something. Uh, <laughs> and, and I want you on now. A lot of the a lot of the time now, I'll tune in to watch you. To you know, when when Black Lives Matter goes on the march, and then some you know racists of the far right come in and start um, hammering them and and rioting through London and stuff like that. I'm watching all this happen and I, and I want to look into it and hear about it. I look for your opinion. Like I look for, um, you know, Russell Brand will have said, will have done something about this and a comment on Instagram or on, on YouTube or whatever. Now you're very much like a social commentator. I, I don't know. Did that have to be sort of navigated in some way? Like, did, did you think about it too, that much? Like, like to, from the guy that was on Ponderland who being taken seriously commentating on everything that's going on in the world at the moment. Like how does that transition happen? I think bits of you fall away. If you're progressing as you should, bits of you fall away. You recognize that they're useful for a little while. And the construction of persona and masks, everyone performer or not is engaged with not all of us reveal everything about who we are all the time to everyone because it's impossible. And a performer is just a heightened version of that. You have to cultivate aspects of yourself that you think are going to be be successful. In a way, thinking about your earlier question about the sort of apparent polarity between sort of the, say, Gary Vee, Tony Robbins, realize the individual versus the Eckhart Tolle, uh, allow your sort of individuality to 
be submerged in the great flow of oneness, mm. it makes me realize that, you know, part of what we're saying is you can, through the individualistic aspect at least, is you can control your own story. You can say, this is how I want to realize myself. But you use the phrase there, um, be taken seriously. And I think that, that we can't deny that that phrase has built into it other people's approval, other people's opinions, other people's feelings. And I think that actually what we have to alchemize that into, Kev, is taking whatever it is you're doing seriously yourself and allowing other people to have whatever feelings about it or reaction to it that they're going to have. And recognizing that in the sort of essence of the cheeky chappy Kev from Grimsby thing is, some, is a sort of an energy, a tool, a utensil, something that's valuable. But, that, but if you don't ever evolve that and develop it, it, you know, it might be to your, uh, to your, what I say, it's going to impair you, it's going to impede you, it be to your detriment is what I was trying to say. Yeah. And like, but that's not to say it's wrong if you do stay on Strictly as some, some Strictly folk have stayed on there for ages and they're brilliant and great but for you it's like right you've done the bit you want to do and now you want to move on what is it you can retain from that experience and what is it that's different you want to express now even from having this conversation it's clear that what you're interested in is truth and authenticity and performative style styles beyond dance specifically singing and acting so it seems to me that what we're discussing is creating a sort of post-modern biographical musical where you tell the story of what it's like to pass through different milieus of culture. This is what it's like to exist in the mainstream, a kind of adult Billy Elliot passing through different theatrical and show business disciplines looking for truth, looking for authenticity, we are also sort of in, in some ways distinct and different from one another, but my, it still is my belief that we're all kind of looking for the same thing in our various ways, a kind of sense of union and love. And I reckon that one of the positive things that's come from this lockdown, and God knows there's some fearsome things as well, and particularly for theatre, as we've noted, is that you know we've all been given some time to evaluate what we care about and what's meaningful to us. And I think we have to trust that a little bit. So you think like what, without with a spiritual dimension, how I handle this sort of thing is like, all right, God, this is what's going down. Then we're all on lockdown. There's a lot of uh, turbulence and change. Some of which seems really, really positive. Some of which has been scary. What do you want me to do? What's my role? And when I sort of say God, when I petition or pray in that way, I ain't expecting a bolt of lightning. I'm expecting that part of my deep, deep intelligent self that's running my stomach and pumping my heart and replacing the cells when necessary, that that in some way knows how to get into the flow of who I am and realize myself. Mm. And creativity is, our, is a very direct engagement with that energy. Like I spoke to like loads of creative people and you know, particularly like recently, Judd Apatow, the creator of like all like Knocked Up and the film I done Game to the Greek and the new film, that Staten Island film. And he talks about creativity. He says like it just comes through him sometimes. He doesn't know how it happens. And 
Elizabeth Gilbert, the same thing. You just have to be open. And Julia Cameron, the writer of The Artist's Way, a book that anyone that's interested in creativity should get and investigate, says the same thing, that these forces are just trying to come through you. Trust it. If you're continually saying, look, I want you to make me seem smart or clever or intelligent or important, that gift can't do what it's got to do. You know, you're impeding it with the ego. And I, I, I know that because that's what I've done a lot. But what I'm trying to do now is just sort of see where it's trying to go. And for me, that involves, you know, I'm writing stuff and I'm not performing outside of doing little videos because, you know, for the same reason, none of us are. And I'm aware that, you know, there's, there's loads of things could happen. There's loads of things can happen. I'm being sensitive to what's happening in the world and thinking, well, what's, what role am I? How can I be useful here? How can I be useful? And sometimes I don't know, so I don't do anything. I just, you know, I know I can be useful when dealing with other people with addiction issues or mental health issues. You know, I don't mean in a public way. I mean sort of in a personal way and sometimes in a public way. And if, <clears throat> if I'm uh, invited to participate in, other broader things then I will if I think I can but what I have to do is watch you know I have to watch the part of myself that sort of wants to be the center of everything because that part of me has got me in trouble even when doing stuff that was pretty idealistically sound like talking about inequality or problems with democracy if my ego gets too much airspace it'll guzzle up the lot (laughs) (laughs) yeah so maybe then it's a case of um, think, figuring out or, let, or maybe letting it come through you, being open to letting that thing that you would really, how you want to use your talent or, or whatever, letting that come through. And in the Tony Robbins, Gary Vee sense of the word going, okay, that's what, understanding that that's what you want, that's what you want to do and yeah. in that direction. But then on the Eckhart Tolle side of things, like let go of the, expectation of what other people are going to say about it. Yeah, that's good. And I remember now that someone told me a long time ago that enlightenment is contingent on being able to hold two opposing ideas simultaneously. And that makes sense even in the physical realm when you think of the potential of particles of light to collapse into wave function and vice versa. That the that uh, the most basic level aspects of the material world exist in a state of possibility and we are a more complex expression of that. So we have to be aware that we are both free-flowing and individuals. So I suppose when we think, all right, let's set an intention. I'm going to write this thing for myself to be in. Right, that's my intention. But I know it's not going to, you know, if my, if my intention behind that really is I want privilege Uh, you know privilege and plaudits and adulation Mm -hmm. then I know that it's not going to fulfill me so right how am I going to do this to be of the service to the higher good how am I going to you know it's one thing I would add to the Gary V Tony Robbins Eckhart Tolle sort of thing is where is this bringing love where is this of service to others if that's in the mix then uh, that really helps mitigate the appetites of the ego yeah that, that makes a lot of sense okay Cool. That's, that sounds a lot of my stuff. I've asked you loads of stuff. I've written down, I'd written down loads of like about 10 things to ask you, which I would think I've asked you about two of them. But like, <laughs> I knew that we'd sort of go off in loads of different directions. Um, 
But yeah. If there's anything else you want to ask, I'm just on a dog walk. Um, I'm like, look, that? I'm here. I'm, 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 in, I'm in a field. <laughs> oh, it looks nice. So, like, I'm, I've not got a lot on. You're not keeping me from... Well, you are. I mean, I've got two children who have <laughs> got to grow up with a present, engaged and focused father who's observing them and allowing them to be who they are, helping them to realise themselves. I've got that. That's <laughs> one of my jobs. Yeah, how's that Other going? That, it, how's that all going in lockdown? Like, I don't have kids, but like... I know a it's lot intense, of- Kev. Yeah, it's intense. It's intense. It's amazing. It's beautiful and like, uh, but exhausting. Like, like when they go to bed, you think, oh, yes, they've gone to bed. But you love them more than anything. Normally by the next morning, I'm really happy to see them again. But when they go to sleep, I try, because everyone who's got older kids will go to you, enjoy it, make sure you enjoy it. You do have to, you know, that's what I think about. I really try to be with them. I really try, I heard again from Eckhart Tolle the other day, like he said, like the, you, like everyone with children focuses on doing, like do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. He said, but you must bring the attention to being, be with them, show them how to be. So I try to remember that. I try to remember that we don't always have to be engaged in some activity, that we can spontaneously be engaged in the moment. Try and talk to them about their feelings, you know, but they're only three and two, you know, so you can't start hitting them up with, you know, with (laughs) post-modernism or Zen Buddhism. Although sometimes, although sometimes I I like to imagine that you are talking to them about that sort of thing. <laughs> I try to a bit because I don't want those ideas to be alien to them when it's <laughs> going to be necessary for them to understand. So I just stitch it in a little bit. There's the cocoa pops. See how it deconstructs into the milk. They are becoming one, as all things are one. And by the way, that's oat milk because we we're not involved in the dairy industry in a direct way so (laughs) i try to pack messages into the cocoa pops yes got it yeah we're doing doing (laughs) um someone just because someone asked on oh well on that note actually thank you as well because um your lovely wife must be wicked with the kids she brought out that wicked book Mm, yeah my wife who you should follow on instagram at the joy journal wrote a book on craft activities to do with children. She's a very um, creative person and does lots of mindful craft activity with kids. And that's sort of what she's doing more generally now is she's writing another book and all of that. Sometimes I listen to her doing those crafts with our kids and here I go, no, what are you doing? Get off. And I think, yeah, see, no one's perfect. You know, like to deal with children is to engage with, with chaos. It's, <laughs> it's a good, like, really good way of understanding the limitations of our power and but also that you know the overwhelming beauty of the world i mean there's so much in it mate i would recommend it when mm. it's actually your thing the joy journal yeah for everyone the joy journal yeah. and having children yeah that book but also get um recovery your book um recovery is a brilliant book Everyone who's listened to this should, should get uh, recovery because I love the way how um, it's about, you know, recovery from addictions, I think it's called, isn't it? Um, and yeah. It's a 12-step program, but you can sort of apply it to anything, anything that's not serving you or any habits that you're into, like as, as extreme as if you're a heroin addict, but also it can be as, as little as like, oh, I really should be going to the gym, but I keep not going to the gym. It's like, there's just, yeah. that, um, 
it, you know that it doesn't work for you, but you keep going with that habit anyway. Um, yeah, that's a good uh, description of it. Yeah, I, I really, I really love that book. Um, so ev- everyone, Thanks, kids. everyone needs to get that. And, but this podcast is not about like trying to advertise the books, but like I just thought I'd mention it anyway. Um, it's very kind of you to do that. <laughs> um, well, the other thing I was, I was just someone asked me when when I put it on Twitter and that like oh like is anything you want to ask Russell? Um, and I knew this question had come, but um, they were like, oh, would you ever do Strictly? I, well, I would. I would like to in some ways because I'm a fan of Strictly. Yeah. But, um. I. I here are some things that I'm not good at: being judged, <laughs> dancing. <laughs> like I mean, like I, I think I would. It would overwhelm me. I think. I think it would overwhelm me. Like uh, when my wife's sister was on it a couple of years back. I just like that's when I first started to watch it. But oh my god, it's so intense. I mean, I, I love it because I think it's sort of vibrant and sexy and powerful and emotional and sad and weird. Like, and I, I love the characters in it and I love the stories. But, like, I, uh, I'm too sensitive, Kev. <laughs> like, if someone told me after I'd just tried my artist, you know, and I'm not like, a, you know, it's not like I could be like that dude, Ed Balls or something. I'm not like, I don't know. I've not got, people would expect me to be better. That's what I feel like. <laughs> but you've got to let go of that. You've got to let go of your... Yeah, right. Let go of it. <laughs> I can't tell what yeah. that reason for not going on Strictly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he'd go on though, would he? You wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to get Eckhart Tolle for a literal self-confessed polystyrene ball covered in glitter and tell him that is your objective, that is your aim, to get that. Now, put your marriage through the ringer with one of these vibrant, sexualized lizard people. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how we met. I'll tell that story for everyone listening. Like, when I, I came to see you at um, Grimsby Auditorium, you were doing your uh, rebirth tour at, at Grimsby Auditorium, and I thought, yeah, yeah, that'll be a good excuse for me to go up and, and uh, see my mum and dad up in Grimsby and see some old schoolmates, and we'll go and see Russell Brand. And um, went up and uh, got a few tickets, and um, we were sat right up near the back. And then you came on with the um, that bit that you do in your show where you, you've got replies from an audience on like when they buy their tickets, they can fill in this form about their like their sexual preferences. And, stuff. and then you brought the ca- the camera out and started filming the audience on this big screen. And suddenly, like I was in shot, and I was and I was drunk. Like I'd had a few before I even got there, and you, <laughs> you were. Um, and then someone down near the front was going, that's Kevin. He said, there's Kevin. There's Kevin off Strictly come dancing. I was like, what? I fucking love him. Where? <laughs> I was like, oh no, you got to be shitting me. Because I, I was like, in my mind, there's, there's like, there's no way Russell Brand watches Strictly. Like, he's not going to know. And this is like, he's in the middle of doing his bit. This is his show and his act. And, and, and he'll have looked at some of these responses and thought, oh, I can, I can talk about that. And I can like, uh, this will be really funny if I do something like that. And this woman is really like crashing his performance at the moment. by going, it's Kevin from Grimsby, Kevin from Strictly. And uh, I was going, please, no, please, no. Because like, if this, like, he doesn't know who I am. And if this starts to annoy him, he's going he's gonna to come for me as like part of the show. And, and I was like, oh God, no, God, no. And then you went, well, where is he? Let's get him. 
And the next thing I know, we, me and you were like doing a samba together on stage. <laughs> gave me a very good impromptu samba lesson. Um, my, hip, my hips haven't entirely recovered. But also, like Shakira's, they don't lie. <laughs> you, were, you were like, oh, no, you, we were trying to do Bachicadas and you went... Uh, no, Kev, you've got me going now. You've got to finish me off. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of profane filth I would use to try and create a punchline, Kev. Well, my mum's like watching it at home live on Facebook. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but if, if I've still got you for a minute, if you're not home yet, on your... Um, I'm, nearly, I'm nearly home. Nearly home. But, and, uh, the dog's getting a good walk, isn't he? Have you noticed? Yeah. So I'm a... Diligent dog walker. <laughs> I, I'll, there's two things I want to ask you. You choose which one you want to answer. I, w- I was going to either one ask you just uh, in general about like creative process. Like if you've been, you know, you're going to be playing like a certain character in a film or whatever. Like what are the steps that you go through to sort of make that character? Or uh, somewhat something that I know you're really knowledgeable on. And um, someone asked me on Twitter uh, about meditation, um, and they said, "What are your thoughts on tramp?" Transcendental meditation. Answer any of that. Well, I'll answer them both. With the with acting and preparation for acting, I do do sort of like I went to like a legit drama school, so I know how to break a scene down into beats. I know how to apply objectives and means, and and to do character work if it's necessary to physically transform. But you know, for the vast majority of the films I've made, it's been a stretch if I bothered to put on a hat, let alone an accent. <laughs> but like the most recent film. I did was like a Kenneth Branagh film and that dude ain't playing. So there was some serious preparation required for that, like a, like a lot of work on the accent and the physicalization of the character. And I must say it was a wonderful experience as a result. So what I realized is as an actor or performer in someone else's work, submit yourself entirely to their vision and see what it is you can bring to it. And then, um, you know, if you're if it's your own creative process, then you've got to be even like if the example of meeting you. If it's your own creative process and you are a sort of a live performer that engages with spontaneity, you've got to really, really trust it and let go of the idea of things going wrong. You know, trusting that something will come, something will come if you trust it. If you trust it, that you can that you can achieve a kind of uh, synergy with the forces of chaos that you can become a vessel for it as for transcendental meditation i've been doing that type of meditation for about 10 years and i was taught it by this brilliant man bobby ross from the david lynch foundation and it's simply a form of meditation where you repeat a mantra inwardly you return to the mantra instead of returning to your breath and it helps you to helps to create some distance between you and the thoughts but the thoughts in your mind but they like very much emphasize you know, no effort, no trying. You know, you think the mantra, say it's the word feather. You think it the same way as you'd think any other word, feather, feather. You don't lean into it. Sometimes it's slow, sometimes it's fast, sometimes it's faint, sometimes it's bold. And then as usual, you start thinking, oh, I shouldn't have done that or I wish this had happened or, you know, whatever. But when you notice you're not thinking the mantra, you return to the mantra. And occasionally, not always, but sometimes you get these moments that I crave as a sort of recovering drug addict is total bliss and transcendence, you know, transcending your individual identity. I'm not in a position to take psychedelic drugs, but people that describe that through certain psychedelic experiences, you uh, access realms of consciousness that are clearly somehow accessible or present 
prior to you engaging, but without the key of those particular uh, plants in the cases I'm just talking about, you don't experience them. I think it's possible to get to a comparable place through uh, meditation, the deep, limitless oneness that is at the fundament of all being. And, and, what, and, and, and how does that affect you going forward? Like, what's the aim of it? Like, cause Suppose I, for me, yeah. the aim for me, Kev, is not to be too attached to, and so everything in my life is not about something that's outside of me, relationships with other people, things that I want, things I'm afraid of. It means that every day I'm spending some time not engaged with the my outer life, but my inner life. And if you think about it, even from the most rudimentary perspective, everything is happening in your head anyway. All of your senses are interpreted into your head or everything you hear, you're hearing it inside your head. It's all being reinterpreted. We, you know, we only see a particular part of the electromagnetic color spectrum, 0.35%. We don't see infrared red light or ultraviolet light. So to be able to return to the root of phenomena, consciousness itself, how it applies in my life, it makes me recognize there's something deeper, something beyond who I think I am and what I think I want. Mm. I, I, yeah, I, I, do, um, I, I use the Headspace app I'm trying to, just to, to do that. But, um, I probably don't do it as, as much as I should. I, I don't do it every day and I still feel like I'm in that I know I guess you shouldn't judge it too much but like I, I do get into that zone where I'm going oh, oh you know I, what, I've done it like five times now this week and I'm like, why am I not Buddha yet and why am I not <laughs> why am I not um, somehow enlightened or why am I not karma why am I still having these thoughts or what? and I'll be having I'll be going through all that whilst I'm trying to meditate and then I start saying well you're meditating wrong you're not doing it right, and then you start telling myself I'm too, I'm too manic in my head to, to do it properly, and and so I'm still a bit like that with it at the moment. But I'm trying to um, just accept the idea, like because every, every, a lot of people swear by it and and say how much it improves their life or their mind in general. Yeah, it's necessary, Kev. Make it part of your routine, whatever type. Like, make it part of when you get up in the morning. If you're like, if you haven't got time to they say if you haven't got time to meditate you haven't got enough time like you know your life ain't organized right and i know if you've got a, a demanding job or a lot of kids then you know you'll be thinking that's easy for you to say but like i think it's very for me at least it's very important to have some time every morning where i meditate and pray before i get engaged with external activity and i think that everyone would benefit from it start with just five minutes if you can just following your breath and feeling your body and experiencing what happens to you. Not judging it, but experiencing it. Not condemning it. There's all of the meditative traditions that I've like been shown. They're all about self-compassion and allowing yourself to experience what you experience. It's only a bit further down the line if you want to get serious where someone, you know, Jap like if it's like Japanese Zen meditation, I might give you a wallop with a stick for nodding off. I don't even know. We're not at the point where there's where we should be judging it according to those kind of rules mm. yeah i'm gonna keep trying well keep it try it tomorrow set the alarm experiencing i guess is the right way to say it not keep yeah yeah right putting some kind of pressure on it um mate thank you so much um thank you uh, is is there i mean if there's anything else that you want to 
say that you um, feel like... Kev, I've told you absolutely everything that I know. And that's that's my entire <laughs> personality on the podcast now. <laughs> um, well, all right, then uh, thank you. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And I... Uh, Are we going to do a real goodbye after the podcast goodbye? Or is the podcast goodbye the real goodbye? Do we do a real goodbye after I've press stop <laughs> alright so there's going to be a podcast goodbye oh. and then a real goodbye okay <laughs> thanks, thanks everybody thanks Kev thanks.